Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please uh, open to Matthew chapter 5. My name is Joel Barker. I'm one of the five elders at our church, and I have the honor to preach God's Word to you this morning. Uh, My daughters were praying for me this morning. My wife let me know, and that was really sweet. And one of my daughters... uh, Somebody needs to be let in, just so you know. On a, yeah. Thanks, brother. One of my daughters prayed, and she prayed that, uh, she said, Dear Lord, would you help my dad have a good preach so that church service can be over? <laughs> and I thought that was good. So, Well, I'm in my 30s now, and uh, so I'm still relatively young, but I'm old enough that college was you know, a decade ago. So it seems like a decent distance away, and at least wasn't yesterday. And I've grown in significant ways, and when you're younger, in your 20s, late teens, you often have lots of zeal. And that's the case with young Christians often. Uh, But often, you don't have the wisdom, it certainly was true for me, you don't have the wisdom to channel your zeal the right way. So, I went through college, uh, as many of you know, kind of on my own authority. I did want to please the Lord. I was a Christian, uh, but I I pretty much did uh, my whole entire Christian life up until my senior year of college, kind of on my own authority, not really in any churches. Now, I went to church services every Sunday, most every Sunday during school, during college. Uh, But I would just hop in the car with whoever's going to this church or that church. It didn't really matter. You know, I was just trying to get to a church service. Um, and so we'd check out one church for a week, and then we'd go to another one for a month, and then we'd be back to that other one. And that was kind of college until, uh, until my senior year. And so what happened is uh, I had a lot of zeal for the Lord, uh, but I had lots of sin, and I had not much wisdom, and nobody to kind of steer me in the right direction. So... What you get with that combination is a young but foolish Christian uh, who wants to follow the Lord as a Christian, but often gets distracted like a toddler gets distracted. And if you have any toddlers or you spend any time with a toddler, you know that if they're in a room and there's a bunch of different things, oftentimes they're here for one minute, then the TV for the next minute, then they want mom for the next minute, and they just kind of hop around to you know, different things. They're not ever going to stay on one point. And that's how my zeal was as a kid, or as a young Christian, as a young teenager getting into college. No shepherd, little wisdom. And so what does that look like? What did that look like for me? Well, what often happens is you get excited for uh, this emphasis of doctrine or this you know, particular nuance, and you'll read a different book or you'll go to a different conference and you'll love this for a minute and you'll love this preacher for this minute and you kind of just hop around. And so I was in a campus ministry during school and they were big on evangelism. And so I was all about evangelism and every uh, faithful Christian needs to be out there uh, open-air preaching. If you really love the Lord, that's what you'd be doing. You'd be sharing the gospel constantly. Um, and it's anybody that didn't do that They just didn't take their faith seriously. Um, But I must have missed where 
Paul says that he gave some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and some to be teachers. So I kind of just made it a law in my mind that everybody's an evangelist to the same degree. So that was, you know, the beginning of college. And then I had some friends that kind of delve into, like, the whole Pentecostal thing. And they were speaking in tongues and prophesying. And so I was like, I'll check that out. And that got a little too weird for me. So I wasn't there for too long. Uh, but, you know, never ended up, I wasn't good enough to speak in tongues, apparently. Um, but I kind of left that crew. And then I went to a conference about unreached people groups, which, uh, if you don't know what I mean by that, it just, they just mean uh, there's, there's groups of people in this world who have no access to the gospel. There's nobody that knows the gospel around them. And uh, so they're unreached. It's not like they... There's many people who don't know the Lord in this town, but they probably know somebody that knows the Lord, and so they wouldn't be unreached. So unreached is somewhere they have no access to the gospel, and so everybody should be a missionary. And uh, how do you, you know, one of the preachers said, how do you know if you're supposed to be a missionary? And he said, well, you should just assume that you're called to be sent until God tells you otherwise, which seemed really wise at the time, but now I realize that's probably a really foolish thing to say to a young college kid who has no filter and uh, no direction. So I was, you know, I needed to be, everybody needed to be a missionary. And I kind of just went from one thing to the next thing. You know, David Platt's books, Radical, came out. And so if you're going to be a serious Christian, you had to live kind of almost in poverty and be giving everything away. And that was the next thing. And that's how I lived my Christian life. And all it ended up doing was making me judge everybody else because I thought this is, this is what Christians should be doing. This is what Christians should be doing. But now that I've settled down a little bit and I've had a pastor and other godly men beat my pride out and instruct me in godliness for almost 10 years now, uh, I'm at least a little less like a distracted child. Um, but it still begs the question, does God call all Christians to, what does God call all Christians to? So I don't believe that he calls all Christians to be pastors, because some pastors, some evangelists. You know, so if he doesn't call everybody to be evangelists, are there things that God calls all Christians to, kind of his general principles? And the obvious answer is yes, and you know this. Excuse me. You hear many things regularly uh, in church that God would call all Christians to. Right? You're supposed to love the Lord. Right? All Christians are called to love the Lord and love their neighbor as theirself. It's not like some get to do that and some don't. Everybody has to do that. Now, loving your neighbor is going to be different for each of us, right? For some of you, it might mean inviting your neighbor over for dinner. Or for somebody, it might be watching their kids. It could mean letting somebody live with you for a certain period of time. Uh, being kind to, some, kind to somebody at school who's often made fun of, sharing the gospel with a coworker. You get the idea, uh, there's many ways, but loving your neighbor is a requirement for all. Uh, but there are other things that Jesus commands for all Christians to do and be, and we'll see that today in our text in Matthew 5. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your maturing process. Thank you that even though it's often slower than what we like, you're still faithful to sanctify us. Even though it often seems like baby steps, I'm thankful that many of us can look 10 years ago and be amazed at 
what you've done in our lives. And would that continue to be true in 10 more years, we pray. Be with us as we open your word. Would you instruct us what your word means? Would you help us be faithful to it? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. For a little bit of context, uh, Jesus has just given uh, the Sermon on the Beatitudes in verses 1 through 12, and he's telling them, this is how disciples of mine are to act. We are to be poor in spirit. We are to be gentle. We are to be thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure, peacemakers. And then he tells them in verse 10 that if you live in such a way Uh, You'll often be persecuted and insulted, but you'll be blessed in that. In fact, you should rejoice and be glad when this happens because your reward in heaven is great. And what you're doing and what's happening to you is actually the same thing that's always happened to the prophets before you. And these are things that apply to all of us. Uh, You are supposed to be poor and gentle and poor poor in spirit and gentle Uh, You are called to thirst for righteousness. That's for all Christians. That's not an optional part of Christianity. And so Jesus has finished instructing the crowds on how they are supposed to live as disciples of his. And he tells them, here's what happens when you live this way. If you live like that, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But what exactly does it mean that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Well, before we answer that, we need to understand that Jesus is assuming some truths about the world that need to make clear to us. They're probably clear if you kind of just think about them, but just to make them clear, what's being assumed is that the world is full of death and decay, and this world is full of darkness. That's what's assumed, and therefore you acting in godly ways, it influences the world as salt and light. And one pastor said that these verses speak of how a Christian influences the world. Now normally, uh, if you know us, uh, we're not really often big fans of the word influence. Because, uh, especially from where Esteban and I come from, and where Josh comes from, um, and really our Christian culture over the last 10 years, when, people, when Christians often speak about having influence in the world, uh, what they mean is totally different than what Jesus often means right here when he's talking about influencing the world as salt and light. See, often when the Christian speaks about influencing the world, they mean being liked and respected by people of importance. Writing in such a way that scholars and the unbelieving world will not scoff at you being so winsome that everyone loves you and doesn't have a problem with you, and then you can kind of use the influence that you have in this person's life to kind of subtly steer them towards things of God. 
You never say anything that people would despise you for because uh, then they could think you're nuts or you're weird or whatever, and then you lose your influence and uh, you, don't have the ex- you don't have the respect anymore. And uh, none of that is the type of influence that Jesus is talking about uh, because he says just in the verses before that there's a good chance you're going to be persecuted and insulted. So, that kind of influence is not what I'm talking about. It also never works, right? Because eventually the people that you gained your respect, that, you know, maybe you gained their respect for a little bit, but they'll just despise you a moment later when you kind of cross them on one issue that they don't want to submit to. You know, for instance, uh, Chris Everling was telling me a story this week, he was talking to some guy at Planned Parenthood, and the guy told Chris uh, that the real way or the most righteous way to live was the way of least conflict. Okay, the way of least conflict. Con- conflict isn't necessary, uh, even though he's entering into a conflict and disagreement with Chris about the nature of conflict. Conflict isn't necessary, he would say. This man claimed. And so Chris asked him, I thought this question was brilliant. Uh, Chris said, you yeah, do you mind me asking, do you have any children? I love the question. Because, as you can imagine, of course he doesn't have children. No, and, you know, he says he doesn't have children. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I love that question. Um, and Chris says, well, yeah, I, I figured you didn't. Because if you, have, if you had children, you would you would know that the kind of the conflict between a parent and a child is just it's natural between two two wills, and, and he kind of scoffs at it and he says, "If you if you think conflict's necessary for parenting, I can't even talk to you." And kind of start walking away, and and Chris is trying to talk to him, and you know, he says, "I I'm no I'm done. This is the same sort of belief, curse word, curse word, curse word, Mister No Conflict." First word. Okay? So, Chris, I mean, pretty nice guy. Got a good smile. Uh, he's, like, he's not, you're not going to think of him as Mr. Conflict. And all he's doing is just, he makes one simple comment about parenting and the world scoffs, right? And that's how it always is. So you're never really going to have people's influence in that sort of way. But nevertheless, Jesus is speaking about how he influenced the world. So when you live the way that Jesus commands, when you're thirsting for righteousness, when you're doing everything in verses 1 through 12, what happens is you end up being salt and light to the world. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be salt to the, salt and light to the world? What does it mean to influence the world in the biblical way? Well, there's lots of ink that's been spent trying to explain what exactly it means to be light of the world, and especially what it means to be the salt of the earth. Uh, I was helped by a few men over these, but let me tell you some of the things that you might hear if you were to open up your commentaries. And uh, on this verse, and try to find out what it means to be salt of the earth. Some people 
They say Jesus meant for you to be salt of the earth. Uh, when he says that, it means that you are to sting the world like salt stings an open wound. So if you've ever had an open wound and salt gets in it, it burns. So that's what Jesus means. Second Corinthians 2.15 says, For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one an aroma from death to death and to the other from life to life. And honestly, we do probably need a little more stinging uh, of the, in the world from Christians. Like the men of influence that I talked about earlier, they, along with so many other Christians, uh, want to live their life in such a way that you don't upset anyone or you don't cause problems. Who cares if the world is falling apart and great wickedness spreading all around us and people are being injured and family members are being taught wicked things? You know, just don't say anything. Don't cause conflict. No, we're not called to live like that. In many contexts, Christians call, call out sin. We don't keep our mouths shut when your cousin is teaching some wicked thing at some family reunion. And trust me, if you open your mouth, if you open your mouth at work, if you open it at a family reunion, if you open your mouth instead of being silent in the face of wickedness, uh, you will be hated for it. And while I think opening your mouth and stinging others with the truth of the gospel or some other truth of God is a good thing, I'm not sure that stinging the world is the main point that Jesus is getting at. Now, other commentators, they would say that you're supposed to add flavor to life. Just like salt kind of adds flavor, you add joy and excitement to life. Salt brings out the flavor in your food, and in the same way you do that in your workplaces and your family. And I think that's true in a sense, right? In our creation and taking dominion over the earth, it should be full of life and full of joy. Uh, you probably shouldn't be a stick in the mud and a big bummer to be around. We should make the world better in the things that we create and in how we go about our jobs. You know, a Christian store manager should be uh, noticeably different in some ways than the pagan store manager. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be energetic and loud. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying there, has, there should be some real differences between you and the pagan and how you go about your life, right? So some real difference in the arenas of your life, you add sort of a flavor to life, and that's good and right in a sense, sure, but I don't think that's primary either. Another idea is that salt makes you thirsty. Preaching makes you thirsty. So if you live as God commands, you will create thirst in others, and people will look at your life and They'll want to know where your hope and joy comes from. Just like 1 Peter 3.15, it reminds us that we should always be ready to give an account for the hope that's in us. People should look at your life and they should notice that you live differently. You spend your money differently. You have a peace about you and trials that the world does not have. You treat your spouses and kids differently. You don't talk poorly about your husbands in front of you know, all the rest of the girls. You, your co-workers are amazed that you want to be around your wife and your kids when they're all talking about how they are so excited that they're going to get to go play golf because they don't have to go home early today. I could go on and on and on, but you live differently, as a, differently than the world. And if you do that, people want to, will want to know what's going on with you. 
and you'll create a thirst. You know, why are you always so kind? You know, why won't you ever gossip about your boss? Things like this are creating thirst, and while that's partly true, I'm not sure that's the main point either. I think all these things are true. I think we ought to sting the world. I think we add flavor to the world. We create thirst in others. But I believe Jesus is getting at something else here. And, that's we, and that is that we are to be a preservative in this decaying world. While the things are true in a sense that I mentioned, another use of salt back then was to be preservative. What you would do is you would rub salt kind of in the meat, and it would preserve it for longer. And we now have fridges and freezers, so we're not really used to using salt in such a way. But I believe Christians help preserve the world in the midst of an onslaught of wicked men. And think of all the ideas that I gave before. You know, stinging the world, adding flavor, causing thirst. You know, all those things, in a sense, do help preserve the world from further decay. So while Jesus doesn't go into specifics exactly what he means about salt, uh, perhaps that's the point. You know, the Holy Spirit could have kind of defined exactly what he meant by salt, and we could have that in God's Word, but we don't. But that's not really even the point. The point is, if you live and apply verses 1 through 12, you will be salt and light. There's no other way around it. You live like this, you live as a Christian, and you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You know, when my wife and I bought our house five years ago or so, we met our neighbor, Jimmy. And Jimmy is the redneck of rednecks. And he calls himself that, so I don't feel rude. He introduced himself to me as a redneck, so his words. Well, when I met Jimmy, we were out talking on his lot, and he's drinking his beer and smoking a cigarette, and he's swearing like a sailor. And we're getting to know one another, and you know, I ask him what he does for a living. And he's in construction, builds roads around southern Indiana. And then he asks me what I do for a living. And I tell him, well, I, I work as, at my church kind of like an assistant pastor. In his eyes. You know, because he's been swearing for the last 20 minutes. And he even actually, he tells his wife to like put the beer away. <laughs> Which I chuckled at and told him he didn't need to do. But, you know, he's talking in a filthy manner, right? And then he realized I worked for a church and it was like, I mean, he was done. Like, no more swearing, right? And you might criticize that and say, well, you know, he's just pretending, he's going to go home, he's going to talk like that, you know, the second you leave. But, what's happening? You know, just being a Christian makes you the salt of the earth. And people uh, feel convicted around you because they, they know, I mean, he knows you shouldn't talk that bad, Right? People see you coming and they think and they're talking in you know, filthy ways and they should like, they should just stop. You know, shh. 
Daniel's coming. That should just be a normal thing. Now, we're not just after their behavior in the moment, right? But you being there has an effect on the people around you. And you might still be scoffing and saying, well, you know, they're only acting good around you, and then they leave and they start talking like that again. And that's probably true in that situation. I fully expect that Jimmy went home that night and just started talking the same way that he was right before that. But you know what often happens? When that person needs help, or that person needs guidance, or someone to talk to, it's you who they turn to. It's not their friends who are living like the world and swearing like a sailor. It's you who they talk to and want to know your opinion on something or want your help. Jimmy's son, probably a year or so after we lived there, he's 25, probably about my age, maybe a little younger than me at the time, uh, he died in a motorcycle accident, 25 years old. And I've gotten multiple phone calls from Jimmy, who's in his 50s, calling me crying over the pain of losing his son. And when his grandson's mother uh, caused a bunch of conflict in his life, uh, I stood out on the lot and prayed with Jimmy, and we talked for over an hour. And I hope Jimmy will finally really trust God and repent of his sins soon. But my point is that this type of stuff happens when you live God's way and you become the salt of the earth. You don't have to do anything special to become the salt of the earth. You just have to live like a Christian. You know, like many of the people know that like the Snells are doing great stuff in their neighborhood, and praise God for that. And I reckon that there's probably some parents who just don't really care uh, about the whole, you know, their faith at all. You know, great. Glad my kids have somewhere to hang out. They might think, um, but they're probably not. There's probably plenty of people that aren't interested in Snell's faith. Uh, but they will be calling D, and they will be calling Chris when they need help, because they know that they're Christians and they're the salt of the earth. It's not something special. And even though Jesus doesn't go into specifics about what it means exactly to be salt, and there's tons of ink spilled on what exactly it means to be salt of the earth, if you live the way that Jesus prescribes in verses 1 through 12, if you apply those Beatitudes to your life, Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. It happens because you're a Christian. And Jesus also calls us the light of the world. Verse 14 You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When you live as Christ commands, you are the light of the world. It just happens. 
In Israel, many cities were built on top of a hill, so at night you could see where the city was way off in the distance. You could make your way there because the city couldn't be hidden. It was lit up. It was on a hill. If you're a Christian and you live like it, you cannot be hidden. Again, I don't think that means that you have to be open-air preaching. I just mean that if you live as a Christian, you will not be hidden. In your workplace, in your family, with your friends. Now, you can certainly put your light under a basket. You can certainly uh, try to hide it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But naturally, the Christian is the light to the world. So what does it mean to be the light of the world? Well, John 1.4 says, In him was life and life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So to be light is to point to the true source of light, which is God, his word, and the gospel. You are the moon, and he is the sun, and you reflect the true light the same way or in a similar way that the moon reflects the sun's light. When you walk into your school, into your family gathering, into your sports team, your job, your intramural thing, you bring the light of the world with you. You walking into the room as a Christian is like this. You have a a bunch of people and they're in a room and it's completely dark. And when you walk into the room, you have the flashlight and it's on. And it brings light to the whole room and you don't need a whole lot of light to light up a room when it's completely dark. It lights up the whole thing pretty easily. And you can show people how they are to walk and what truth really is. Before they were in a dark room, they had no idea where anything was or how to walk or which way to go. But you, as the light, bring the word of God to the world and teach them the true things found in Scripture. And it illuminates people's lives. And they can see for the first time what is true about themselves. They can see their own sin. They can see that there's a way to actually go. Now, we have incredible technological advancements in our day and age. A couple months ago, I was marveling with my wife about how absurd it would sound uh, to tell myself, you know, 20 years ago that there's going to be this, this phone thing that's like a computer, and they have apps on it, and you click it, and I can click the Target app, and I can, like, see a bunch of things, and I can order it and I can pay for it on my phone, and then some guy's going to get this message with all my orders, and he'll go pick it for me. And then that same phone will tell me that it's done, that they're done doing that, and I'll drive there, and the phone will be followed by GPS, and then they'll know when I'm there, and they'll just bring it out to my car and put it in my trunk, and I'll go home. You know, we've made so many advancements in this world and in medicine and produce and manufacturing and stores are more efficient than ever. And all these things, and yet, people are still blind as a bat when it comes to their true purpose of life, which is to spend their life glorifying God. We can have cars drive for us now, but people still have no idea how to deal with their sin. And it doesn't matter how far we go and how amazing this world gets in that realm, people are still going to have no idea what to do with their sin. And you are going to be salt and light no matter 
what? This is God's plan for you and for me. We bring the light of the gospel to the world. This is how God has ordained it. Are you being a light to those around you? Are you letting your good deeds shine for all to see? Not so people will say, wow, look how amazing that guy is. But so people can glorify your father. Or are you walking around and putting a basket over it? See, Jesus says that our salt can lose its saltiness. And you can put your light under a basket, and it effectively makes it useless. And we can do this in many ways. One of the ways we do this is by living just like the world. If I was speaking the same way that Jimmy was speaking, uh, I highly doubt that Jimmy would really, I mean, I'd be the nice neighbor, but I don't expect that I would be getting any calls because I would be no different than Jimmy, and I'm 20 years younger than him, so what do I know? Why would he call me? If you laugh at the same things that your coworkers laugh at, the same immoral, unkind things, they will not see you as any different, and you effectively are hiding your light under a basket. You won't stand out any different. We also lose our taste if we hide our faith purposely and we keep our mouth shut. And listen, I know there's a right time for opening our mouths. I'm not saying that every single time you need to be the person opening your mouth in every situation. That's not what I'm getting at. But you know when there's times that you should have said something and you didn't talk. I mean, every man who has any sense of honesty knows that he's been a coward multiple times in his life. So you know what I'm talking about. We've all done this. Every single person. And we just, you know, walk into the room and turn the flashlight off or hide it in our pocket. But if you leave it on, which just means if you just live like a Christian, it doesn't mean doing anything special. Just living as a Christian in your everyday life. You know, you'll walk in with the light and people will mock you, that'll despise you, because they liked the darkness. They liked the dark room before you entered. Right? They liked talking the way that they were talking before you made them feel bad about the way they're talking. We had a lady in our church a few years ago, and she became a Christian, um, and she started sharing the gospel with her pagan friends. And a good number of them just shunned her, wanted nothing to do with her. And it caused a bunch of conflict in her friend group. And you know what? She, she felt terrible. She thought it was all her fault. That she had caused so much drama and conflict. It was all her fault. She felt so guilty because she was trying to love them and it just kind of blew up. Just for sharing the gospel with her friends. And so certainly she must have done it wrong. She must have somehow did something wrong. It was her fault. She didn't share it well enough. She wasn't kind enough. 
But if you've ever stood for anything, you know that it doesn't matter how kind or perfectly you say something. If you've ever stood for anything in your extended family, uh, you know that they will make you out to be the bad guy. You're the unkind Christian. You're the one who's unloving. You're the one who's not acting Christ-like. And listen, I want you to be prepared for that. Because Satan will use anything and everything to make you feel like you're doing this whole salt and light thing wrong. Just to expect that, that some will hate you. And realize their issue is not with you, but with the God of the universe. The one who knows their hearts and whom they'll give an account to someday. All men know they sin. Every one of your friends who's not a Christian, they know that they sin. And they know there is a God, even if they don't know much about Him. And they know that they are guilty. Right? Jimmy knew he was guilty for his bad language. Know that they're guilty. And they will malign you for being the light. But it's not your fault. I wish I could help younger Christians understand that because I certainly thought this way. But it's not your fault. You don't need to feel bad that you're gentle, that you thirst for righteousness, that you seek actual peace, not the peace of the world, and the rest of the things that Jesus mentions in the previous verses. But even though some will hate you, some will love you because you are showing them the real light of the world. Some are walking in darkness, and God will use you as light walking into this room to show them truth, and they will love you for it. So, are you walking in God's ways? so that you can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Or are you losing your saltiness and hiding your light because of your cowardice or because you're living just like the world? I'd encourage each one of you guys to spend time in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, and think about these things this week. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be an open-air preacher. That's not for everyone. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to do all these different new Christian fads that come up for a year or two and then die down. But you as a Christian, in various ways, are salt and light to this world just simply by living as a Christian. You know, my mantra over the last couple of years when I'm talking to guys is, you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to do amazing, massive things. But you just have to do something. Can you do something? Can you do something small? Can you talk to one friend about the gospel? Can you take a stand on just one little thing where you know it's going to be unpopular, but you know it's right? Can you stop gossiping and seek peace when others love conflict? Read Matthew 5, 1 through 12 this week. Can you just take one small step? Can you just try to apply one of those things that you're lacking that Christ has called you to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us that we are salt and light to this world. But God, we have so many weaknesses. And when we read 
Matthew 5, 1 through 12, we see so many ways in which these things are not true about us. And so many times that we fail trying to do these things. We see our sin. We see how often we live like the world does. Forgive us for these things. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that all these things have been paid for. God, help us, sanctify us, grow us in godliness, help us apply these things. For those that spend time in Matthew 5 this week, I pray that it would be sweet for them, that you would help them grow in the things that they read. We love you. We're thankful to be with you this morning. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. There are, uh, there's no closing song. But we uh, hope that we'll see many of you at the Thompsons today. Hope you have a great week, though. You're loved.